Now this is normally where you see John Holmes come up and have someone read scripture and I'm not John Holmes, but I am going to have Ken Ackerman come up and read our scripture for this morning. Thank you. If you turn to your Bibles under the chairs, it's John 17, 18 through 26. John is reporting what Jesus was saying to his disciples. And if we keep in mind that we all are striving to be his disciples, you can follow along with me. 18. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so they can also be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I and them, them, and you are in me. May they be made completely one so the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation righteous father the world has not known you however i have known you and these have known that you sent me i made your name known to them and will make it known so that you the love you have loved me may be in them and i may be in them Thanks, Ken. Wait, wait, you're not done yet. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. This bumps are the old. We're the new. We're back to. We're, we're, we're old school. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Uh, this morning, we have the privilege of having Adam Johnson uh, share with us this morning. Adam is the president and founder of a ministry called Convincing Proof. And that, the name of that comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 3, where Jesus was spending time with his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension. And Acts describes that as Jesus providing them with many convincing proofs, and thus the name. And um, Adam's ministry involves apologetics, and he's here to, to share with us. So I invite Adam up to share with us this morning. Thank you. It's great to be here with you this morning. Like a, a preacher I even bring my own podium with me when I come but I'm excited to be here and as uh, Tip said the name of my ministry that I serve with and through is Convincing Proof. You can learn more about the ministry on the website convincingproof.org as well as a table that we have set up in the back you can learn more about the ministry but I'm not here to talk about my ministry I'm here to preach God's word. And I'm excited to do that. I, before I served in more of this apologetics role, I was a local church pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor, in fact, 
down in South Carolina. I'm from this region. I grew up in Saunders County, if you know where that's at, Wahoo, Fremont area, Ashland, Mead. But I lived in South Carolina for 10 years. That's where I did my seminary training and served as a local church pastor. But now I serve with this ministry, Convincing Proof. We're going to be in John this morning, and we're going to end up in John 17, but I'll probably start you off in John 13. If you want to turn in your Bibles to John 13, that's where we're going to begin after a rather lengthy introduction. Now, everyone understands that the important thing in life is our loving relationships. In fact, I think it's safe to say that the very of our life is tied into our loving relationships. Of course, our relationships vary over the years, right? When we're young, relationships we value the most is our parents. Later in life, it's uh, friendships, eventually a spouse, and then our own children, right? So the relationships change throughout our life, and then grandchildren, of course. But the consistent thing on our deathbed, it seems like we all recognize that the most important part of our lives is just that, our personal loving relationships. That those relationships seem to be the very foundation of life, our existence, our meaning, our purpose. We all seem to know this, and that's why our culture finds itself in the crisis that it is. You see, Western culture is in a situation where that actually doesn't make any sense. I'm going to show you a quote now from a philosophy professor from Berkeley. His name's John Searle. Take a look at what he wrote here. He said, the central question in philosophy beginning of the 21st century is how to give an account of ourselves as apparently conscience Conscious, mindful, free, rational, speaking, social, political agents in a world that science tells us consists entirely of mindless, meaningless, physical particles. Who are we? How do we fit in to the rest of the world? How does the human reality relate to the rest of reality? One special form of this question is... What does it even mean to be human? Now, I trust that you feel the weight of this problem. You see, if the physical universe is all there is, if we're just, in other words, matter in motion, then love is merely a chemical reaction to trick us into passing on our genes. There's no meaning or purpose in life. We're just a cosmic fluke. I don't really see any way to escape that conclusion if reality is ultimately just made up of mindless, meaningless, physical particles. 
But deep down, I think we know that that's not true. Deep down, we know that there is meaning and purpose to life. reaction. Hence the crisis that Western culture finds itself in. The tension then in our culture is that on one hand, we know that love is real. But on the other hand, science is telling us it's not. Well, I've come to the conclusion... So is the best explanation for how and why love is in fact real. For how and why life really does have meaning and purpose. So consider here for just a moment. Consider that according to physicalism, sometimes it's called materialism, this idea that all that exists is the physical material universe. Consider that idea for just a moment here. If that is true, if in fact materialism, physicalism is true, then ultimate reality is some sort of physical matter, right? For a long time, we thought that atoms, A-T-O-M-S, atoms were the fundamental building block of reality. But then we discovered that atoms are actually made up of smaller subatomic particles, electrons, protons. Next, we discovered that protons are actually made up of smaller particles, quarks. And someday we might find out that quarks are yet made of something else smaller. Regardless, if materialism is true, then whenever we get to the rock bottom of reality, whenever we pull back the final curtain of reality, if materialism is true, all we're going to find is some sort of small physical building block. That's all reality is. If physicalism, materialism is true. But if Christianity is true, if Christianity is really actually true, then when we pull back the final curtain of reality, we're not going to find physical particles. No, what we're going to find is personal, loving relationships. You see, if God is ultimate reality, and if Christianity is true, and that God exists as a trinity of three persons in loving relationships with each other, then the fact is ultimate reality just is love and loving relationships. And I think that makes a lot more sense out of the experience of our lives. And so if this is true, instead of questioning whether love is even real... We can affirm, fully affirm, that love exists and is actually at the bedrock of meaning, purpose, even existence itself. That love is the foundation of all reality. Now, when it comes to scripture, you're probably familiar with... Don't turn there. This well-known section in terms of at least and defined. It's often used and read a lot at weddings, maybe even at your own wedding. 
1 Corinthians 13 was read. Without love is patient, love is kind. It goes on to beautifully explain what love is like. But it ends with kind of a mysterious verse. We're not going to take the time to look at it. I'll put it up on the board in a second here. But that section, 1 Corinthians 13, ends with a, a bit of a mysterious verse. After it describes and defines love, it says this. It says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. It seems to be saying that, look, uh, we can see and understand this love as it was just defined and described to us. We can see it to a certain degree right now. We can see patience. We can see kindness. But it's kind of like looking through a dark window, a, a dirty window even. We can see it, but we can't quite make it out exactly. We can't quite see how love really is in all of its beauty and brilliance. It's like we're looking at it through a dark, dirty window. But there's also a promise here. There's a promise that someday we will see love more clearly. Someday when we are face to face with God, then we will know love fully and completely. We look forward to this, of course, but it's kind of like the situation we're in now. It's almost, you might have this experience sometimes when you, when you walk into your home and you get a, a, a whiff of your favorite food being cooked, right? Maybe it's a chocolate chip cookies that are baking in the oven or some sort of roast or meat that's being grilled on the barbecue. You get that whiff and you're excited, but, but that's just, it's not quite the real thing. It's just a whiff of it. And nothing is compared to actually sinking your teeth into it. And it kind of gives that impression that we can kind of get a whiff of love. But someday we're going to know it fully and completely. Well, as beautiful as 1 Corinthians 13 is, I would argue that Jesus has actually given us a clearer insight into what love really is in John 17. I'm convinced that here in John 17, we'll find the clearest answers in all of Scripture about the, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, and what love really looks like. We're going to have to um, step back a little bit to understand the context. That's why I'm having you start in John 13. We need to look at a few verses leading up to John 17 so we can understand the context of what's going on when we finally hit our main text for today, John 17. This entire section of John begins in chapter 13. You're familiar with this, I'm sure. It's actually a record of the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples at the Last Supper. It begins here in John 17 and goes all the way through John 17. So in these several chapters then, it's one conversation. It's the Last Supper. Jesus is there with his disciples. So look at uh, chapter 13, verse 1. It says that Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. 
So Jesus knew this is the last time he was going to be together with his disciples before he went to the cross. It was the last opportunity that he had to tell them the most important message. Imagine yourself in that situation. You, maybe you know that you're going to pass away soon or that you're going to leave your family and never see them again. What type of things would you tell others? I guarantee you're not going to be talking about the weather or the rain outside or the, the, the game last night. No, you're going to be talking about the most important things before you say goodbye. And there's a sense here in which then in these several chapters in this conversation, it's the culmination of everything that Jesus had been trying to teach his disciples throughout his ministry. He explains here in 13 that he's leaving this world to go back to the Father. But that causes the disciples a bit of anxiety. And you can imagine why, right? Put yourself in their shoes. They, they, they love him. They're following him. He is their leader. They don't want him to go. Even worse, he tells them that where he's going... They can't come with him. And this generates a lot of concern, a lot of anxiety for them. And he addresses this in chapter 14. Take a look at chapter 14. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 1, but I want to read several verses here. In fact, 1 through 11. So look at John 14, 1 through 11. I'll read it out loud, but read this with me here in your own scripture. John 14, he addresses this anxiety. One, he said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Because in my father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Another disciple speaks up at this point, eight. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I did not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, this, <laughs> these verses are enough to preach on right here. I mean, these are some powerful 
things that Jesus is saying. Consider this for a moment, what he's saying. He's making some incredible claims. He's starting out just addressing their anxiety, right? He's leaving. They can't follow him, at least for now. They're bothered by this. They're anxious about this. So he explains he's going to the Father. Then he explains that he is the path to the Father. I am the way to the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. You know the way to the Father because you know me, and I am the way. If you know me, you know the Father. These are some pretty powerful claims. The disciples, as we see here, Thomas and Philip, they get a bit frustrated here. They say, just, just show us the Father. We're not understanding all of this. This seems very convoluted. Just show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Then Jesus makes even bolder claims. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, what Jesus is do, doing in their minds and explaining to them, he's starting to open that window, that dark, dirty window that we're looking through. He's starting to open it a bit and helping them see ultimate reality here. Ultimate reality just being God, the Trinity. I think ultimately then, in John 17, we have the clearest window into ultimate reality. In John 17, we get to peer into the Trinity itself. In John 17, we have something really beautiful, and it's unique in all of Scripture. We get to see uh, God the Son praying to God the Father. And what that allows us a glimpse of, it gives us a glimpse inside the Godhead, inside their relationship with one another. Ultimate reality. So the, the final curtain is being peeled back for us and we're able to see ultimate reality, the very foundation of existence, of meaning, of purpose. Now we've read these verses already in John 17, uh, 18 through 26. And so I'm not going to read them again. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to summarize some of the key points that I think we can pull out from these verses. So it's like any sort of prayer or any sort of conversation. It's not set out as a, um, I don't know, I guess a, a logical syllogism. It's more of a conversation and certain themes come up over and over again in the prayer, in the conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And so I'm trying to, in these next few slides as we walk through them, capture these main themes, if you will. And I'm going to consolidate some of these verses together and help us identify these main themes in what's often called Jesus's high priestly prayer. So I think one of the first themes that we can pull from this is that ultimate reality just is or consists of personal loving relationships. You see this, for example, in the second part of verse 21. 
Jesus says, you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. The second part of verse 24, Jesus says, they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the world's foundation. You know, there's a sense in which, and I can appreciate this, there's a sense in which the Trinity is a bit difficult to understand. And, and, and I know that. I appreciate that. But there's another sense in which it's actually very simple. So think of the Trinity this way. It's, it's one being, God, the Trinity, is one being, but at the same time, three persons. Strange conceptually to us because we're used to one being being one person. Being, right? And I'm also one person. I'm Adam Johnson. That's what we're used to. One being and one person. And conceptually, at least, that there could be or is a being that is three persons. So one being, not a human being, obviously, divine. He's one being, yet he exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The key point that I think is being emphasized here that we can draw from these verses is the love between those three persons of the Trinity. This fellowship, this communion between the three Trinitarian members is so deep that it's described as them being one in one another. It's similar to how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you are the you, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's that similar concept that the three members of the Trinity mutually indwell one another. That's the sort of inness we're talking about here. Their love, their relationship is so tight, so intricate that they're in one another. They indwell one another. And that's why I conclude and why Christianity has concluded down through the centuries that ultimate reality just is loving relationships. God, the Bible says, God is love. He's existed from all eternity past. As three persons in loving relationship. How different is that idea from the idea that ultimate reality is just physical building blocks? Consider if Christianity is in fact true and ultimate reality is this, this God which exists as a trinity. What that would mean, the implications for, for that from that for our lives the very purpose and meaning of what our lives would be about or where we come from well i think some of those implications can be found in these verses again i tried to collect this theme in various of these verses so i'll run through them real quick 
as Jesus explains. I think here he's telling us we were created. Our very purpose is to join this fellowship, join this communion of loving relationships in the Trinity. We were made in his image, not as divine persons, right? But still persons in a sense, made in his image, human persons, to be a part of that loving communion that has existed from all eternity past. To be part of the Trinity, if you will, not divine, not to be God, but to be in communion, to join the fellowship, to be friends with God. I think that's what's being communicated here in these verses. Again, I just collected them because I think they all hit on the same theme. May they also be one in us, verse 21. Verse 23, I am in, in them, you are in me. You, God the Father, have loved them, the disciples, as you have loved me, God the Son. Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. I made your name known to them, so the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. You see, the same love between the Father and the Son is extended to us. We're invited in. That's, I think, what we were created for was to enjoy a loving relationship with God. That's the very purpose, to love God and to be loved by God. This is eternal life. This goes back to a previous verse, but I think it summarizes the point that's being made here. Verse 3, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about just factual knowledge here. We're talking about a relational knowing someone. We were created in God's image as relational beings to love and to be loved. I want you to know and understand, and I want everybody to know and understand that you're more than just an accidental collection of atoms, right? You're more than just a fluke of the physical universe. You were created for a purpose. You were created to love and to be loved by God. Not only that... But I think the next thing that we can take from these verses is that we were created to be in loving relationships with each other. He talks about this in the prayer as well. He says in the first part of verse 21, May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Now he's talking about them being one, united loving relationships. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. We're to imitate or reflect the unity of God in our unity. And again, the unity there we're talking about is the unity of the communion, the fellowship, the loving relationships. May they be made completely one. The last part of verse 23. You see, because we were created in God's image, God being three loving persons, we reflect them, we reflect him, we image him when we love one another in our personal loving relationships. And we see this in scripture from the very beginning. We know in Genesis, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but we know in Genesis, God created us male and female, and it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. So, so what did God do? Well, he created Eve 
and brought them together to become what? One flesh. He took two persons, united them in one union. A reflection of him, multiple persons, a diversity of persons coming together, being united. So even in our marriages, I believe they're designed to reflect God, to image God as we love each other in our marriages. Our oneness there honors and reflects and images who God is. Similarly, the church. All throughout the New Testament, right? The New the church is described as one body. It's made up of multiple persons. In that oneness and our fellowship and communion in the church, we again, we reflect, we're made in his image to reflect and image God in our oneness in the communion fellowship of the church. The last thing I think we can take, and there's, there's probably so much more, just narrowing it down to four major themes that I think we can draw from this high priestly prayer in John 17. And the fourth one is, in our mission as a church, we don't have to come up with the mission statement. Jesus already gave us loved you. You must also love one another. By this, by this loving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's so critical as we're going out into the world, as you're going out in the world as the church to make disciples, to tell people about God's love. And how they can be forgiven and reconciled back to God through faith in Christ. Reconciled back to that loving relationship with God that they were created for. It's critically important that as we're doing that, we're loving one another well. My ministry, Convincing Proof, is all about evangelism. That, that, that's what it is. We're trying to encourage people to trust in Christ. It's apologetics in the sense that we're giving people good reasons and evidence that they should trust in Christ. But at the heart of it, that's what we're trying to do is evangelism. Encourage people to trust in Christ. And giving them good reasons and evidence that they should trust in Christ. But according to Jesus, according to both John 17 and that verse we looked at from John 13, according to Jesus here, the greatest apologetic we have is... Our love for one another. As important as it is to give good answers when people have good questions, you know, why do we think that there even is a God in the first place? Why do we think that the Bible really is uh, trustworthy? How do we know the Bible hasn't been corrupted through the centuries? All those good intellectual questions are great and we should strive to answer them. That's what apologetics is, is answering some of those intellectual questions and doubts that people have. But ultimately, our strongest case for, according to Jesus here, our strongest case that Christianity is true is our love for one another. Jesus said that's how the world will know that we were his disciples. By the love we express 
towards one another. That's why it's so critical that we as a church, we as fellow Christians, love and care for one another well. We don't let little things get in between us. We don't let little things turn in. We don't let molehills turn into mountains and divide and become divisive and fight and tear at each other because then that ruins our ability to reach the world for Christ. We are supposed to show the world what God is like by the way that we love each other. Because when we do that well, when we love each other well, we reflect God. We, we show the world what God is like. We image him for the world, before the world. Our love for each other, the way we treat each other should be so powerful that it actually acts as convincing proof that Christianity is true. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful here for this record of this prayer. It's short. It's sweet. It's to the point. But there's so much here, Lord, and I am convinced that it's the clearest window we have into ultimate reality, into who and what you are as Trinity. I pray for this church that it will, everybody here would love each other well, that the marriages would be strong, that the fellowship and communion among all the individuals here would be strong and powerful because that's how we reach the world. They see our love for one another. And as Jesus said, that's how they'll know we are your disciples as we love one another. So I pray that you would bless this church with that sort of uh, unity and community and loving relationships. And then just, I want to close by thanking you for making us this way, for making us in your image that can enjoy personal loving relationships, ultimately a relationship with you, but then also relationships with each other, the friendships, the camaraderie, the marriages, the children, all of these things, Lord, as we enjoy them and appreciate them and just find so much fulfillment in these personal loving relationships we know they're yet just a, a reflection of who you really are and we're thrilled that we can enjoy imaging you as we live out the purpose and meaning that you've created for us in this life so in your name we pray amen